Those of you here in the auditorium, we're headed to the book of Revelation. We're going to be at chapter 5. While you're turning, and if somebody be so kind to move around the auditorium with the notes that are at the back, in case somebody didn't get them, raise your hand, and then you'll have the notes to follow along. Let me just do a few silly things here. Name a reason somebody might get rid of an old heirloom. A reason to get rid of an old family heirloom. It's broken. It's ugly. It stinks. It's, you want to get rid of it to get the money? Okay. You no room for it? Okay, here's what they said. They said you're moving, your family has a fight over it. Too much stuff, need money, divorce. It's ugly, don't like it, and it's broken. So you got most all of them. Here's one. Name a place where teens spend a lot of their time these days. Bedroom, their phone, the mall, computer, what else? At friends? Here's what they said. At work... I don't know who those four are. Um, at the mall, a friend's home, on the phone, on the internet, school, or the bedroom. Name a liquid you keep in your kitchen that you hope no one accidentally drinks. Ditch soap, bleach, vinegar, the bacon grease. Oh, that would be that would be horrible. Okay, that one you could chew. Um, Here's what they had. Cleaning products, bacon. Oh, look at that. Whoa. Great minds. Yeah, only two. Okay. <laughs> Soy sauce. I guess that one would be gross. Cooking oil, vinegar, and dish soap was number one. Name a chore people do just once a week. What, did somebody say take a bath? <laughs> that often. That often. Did you want to move? <laughs> okay, chore you do once a week. What'd you say? Laundry. What? Take out the garbage. Any others? Clean. Okay, mow the lawn. Here we go. Mow the, oh, look at that. Mow the lawn. Take out the garbage. Clean the house. Laundry. Grocery shopping. Do you know what number one was? This is just unbelievable. Go to church. Can you believe that? A chore. It would be hard. I just, I just can't believe that. Name a reason. Now I'm going to learn something from you. Name a reason why you might be late for church. Pastor, just, pastor starts early. That's a real problem around here. He, start, he starts early so he never goes late. That's a, <laughs> you overslept? Traffic? Kids? What's wrong with the kids? Get them dressed. Getting them dressed. Getting, yeah, okay. Anything else? Car problems? Oh, you guys are... I'm learning. Keep, keep teaching me. Any other reasons? The spouse. Oh, and how long have you been married? How much longer is that? There we go. Slow drivers. Bathroom is tied up too long. Kids, last minute potty break. That happens in the wintertime after you get them all bundled up. Okay. Couldn't find your Bibles. Trains. That's in Lebanon. Okay. Car problems, busy traffic, and got up late. Uh-huh. Nothing about the pastor starting early. Okay. Name something the Apostle John saw when he had his vision of heaven. He saw a throne. What else? 24 elders. What else? See a glass. The what? The rainbow. Oh, you guys are good. What else? 
the beast? Okay, okay. So he saw, this, uh, this is some of what you said, but there's those instances. So let's get right to it. Revelation 4, if you remember. It starts in Revelation 4 where he's saying, the, the voice saying, come up into heaven and I'm going to show you the things that shall come to pass. And so immediately he's taken up into heaven and now this is the beginning of the prophetic section of the book. When he gets to heaven and he sees things, his attention, as you said already, is drawn immediately to the... And we've already defined and said, okay, the one sitting on the throne is God the Father. Go back into our notes, you'll see that. There was a rainbow, as was mentioned. There's the 24 elders who are around, who we have concluded represent the church, us, in heaven. And uh, then as well, they also saw what you had said, lightning and thunders coming from there. Seven burning lamps, we talked about last week, representing the Holy Spirit. And uh, the sea of glass that is there. And the four living beasts, which are part of the angelic. They have different assignments as angels, uh, as we know from other passages. These four beasts, they are there at the throne, and together the beast and the 24 elders are singing praises to the Lord, where we end up in chapter 4. Now we jump into chapter 5. And so at the beginning of chapter 5, and remember we said this last week, it's a continuation. Chapter 5 is put in, the chapter headings are put in by uh, Bible scholars in the 1200s, 1300s. They weren't there. So we're reading this as a continuation, he says, And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in the earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because there was no one found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders said, Weep not or stop weeping. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. He came, took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts, the four uh, the four beasts, the 24 elders, fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the book, to take the seals thereof. You have slain and has re- have redeemed us. To God by thy blood out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. You have made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. The number of them was innumerable, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor, glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as in the sea, all of them, all and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever in the four beasts say, Amen. Let's walk through this a little bit carefully, but taking our time. Okay, the sealed book we said last week is Biblion. And in ancient cultures of that time, they would use legal documents 
they would use important documents, could be sealed this way, rolled either both uh, from the ends towards the middle or one rolled all the way. Then they would seal it. The sealing could be totally on the outside or it could be segmented. You open a little bit, then you open a little bit, a little, little bit more. And so it was used in important documents. There could be writing on the outside describing what this scroll contained, like your book headings. And so we've stopped and we made these observations that this is could be very similar to what Ezekiel saw that was in the hand of God when he had a vision hundreds of years earlier. And in that vision, he talks about a scroll writing on the inside and the outside. And there were lamentations, mournings, and woes on that scroll. Is it the same one? We don't know. Okay, could it be? Is there similarities? There are similarities. Okay, the scroll that we have in Revelation 5 is one that we know when we get it, start seeing it open. Chapter 6, verse 1, he opens the first seal, then the second seal, the third, fourth, the fifth, and then the, up to the seventh seal. When he opens the seventh seal, that begins what? Okay, uh, nope, the first seal does. The seventh seal begins... Let's go back to the first seal. When he opens the first seal, beginning of the tribulation, that is the beginning of the judgments called the seal judgments. When he opens number seven, that is the beginning of, yeah, the next set of judgments. And then at the end, then there's another set of seven judgments. So when you think of the scroll, immediately all of our minds had one direction, that this scroll is filled with... Woes, lamentations, and mournings, just like Ezekiel said. We are clearly told that this scroll contains divine judgments. That is clear from the text, that it contains it. And then that could very well be what Ezekiel saw. The judgments that when he gets to the, to the second set of judgments that are opened... It says that when they're opened, heaven goes silent for a half hour because they see how drastic, how terrible, how awful. The angels, the 24 elders, stunned into silence because of the horrific judgments that are going to be coming. And so um, my thought is this. Now, this is where I get quirky and you don't have to agree. That's fine. Okay? But it strikes me that the response when they first talk about the scroll and the lamb takes the scroll and then the response later on when the scroll is being opened there's different responses obviously because when he first takes the scroll what did we just read what is all of a sudden happening in heaven how do the angels respond how do the 24 elders respond when somebody comes forth and takes the scroll they're rejoicing, they're praising, worthy, da-da-da-da, glory and honor and praise. But when the judgments are starting to be opened as it goes along, later on there's stunned silence. They're just, whoa. Okay? But there is another time, okay, that happens later on that, um, that causes me to think a little bit different. My, my question goes this way, Okay? Is the scroll, do the heavenly creatures not realize what this scroll represents? Are they all enthusiastic because they think it's one thing, and later on as it unfolds, they go, oh, oh, oh. Or do they understand that the judgments which are there, but there's more to it than just the judgments to the scroll? What I mean by that is this. Okay, 
I have the, impre- the distinct thought that they understand this scroll represents a whole lot more than just the divine judgments. The divine judgments are there. But later on, they say this as he's opening up the later judgments. They say, after the woes, they rejoice again after their silence. Then they rejoice and make this comment, because you have taken to you great power and you are reigning, starting to reign. And so in my mind, it seems to me that the scroll represents more than just the judgments, and that's it. Though the judgments are a vital part of it, it strikes me that what happens is they understand that whoever takes this scroll, there's judgments, but those judgments are the process of defeating Satan, defeating Antichrist, bringing about eventually the what? The return of Jesus Christ, the establishment of his kingdom forever and ever. The the ultimate restoration of everything. Okay, the ultimate resurrection of all saints, the ultimate uh, renewal, and then finally the replacement of planet Earth and working into eternity. Though it has judgments, they are only a step in the process of getting us to God's eternity for all mankind. Does that make sense? Yes, no? Okay. And so what I was getting at last week is the scroll to me represents more than just, okay, who is able, who is able to judge and to destroy what's left of mankind that's resisting? It's, to me, it says, yes, that's part of it, but who is able then to bring about all of the completion of the redemption plan of God? So with that in mind, that strong angel is calling out, who has this power? Who has this ability? Who is you know, able to come and take this scroll and to come bring to pass all the judgments which are part of bringing about God's final kingdom? Who's worthy to open the book? And we mentioned last week, basically, who has the divine right to take something from God's hand? Who has the ability to carry out God's plan, put it into action? Who has the authority to start these divine judgments, to keep them in place, to bring the ultimate defeat of Satan? Who has the ability to eventually wipe out sin in the universe as the end of all of these these um, uh, three sets of seven judgments brings us to that point? And so, basically, to whom can God turn over control of the kingdom? And initial response in heaven is there's deafening silence. There's no one. And John responds with, by doing what? When all of a sudden nobody comes forward. He's, he goes into great weeping. Okay, and we mentioned this last week, that the weeping, this word that's used here is like grieving that Christ did over Jerusalem. It's the idea of Peter, after he denied Jesus, that he wept much and he was brokenhearted. Well, that's where John is. Is John thinking, oh, I thought this was going to come to pass. Does this mean there's no you know, hope for the ultimate future, whatever? And so John is feeling, you know, maybe there is no completion. Maybe, maybe there, you know, is heaven really real in the end of the situation that we're going to have in eternity? Whatever goes through his mind, um, he's disappointed. And so he's responding, but he's, he's reacting too quickly. Yeah. Now... In, in all fairness to John, do we know at times, do, uh, it's made happen, do we know that eventually we're going to end up in heaven? Yes or no? Do we know that? Are there ever moments that you go, what if? Just for a moment. 
what if, or you go, hey, I know that God's going to take me to heaven, but right now this is overwhelming. What's going on here? Does that ever happen to anybody here? That you have those moments where you just feel like, I know he's going to answer my prayers, but it's still, and almost feel overwhelmed. I think that's what John's doing. He knows up here biblical truth, but all of a sudden saying, okay, wait a minute. Is God, is Jesus, where is he? Is it going to come to pass? And he has that momentary panic, that momentary grief, which is premature, because one of the elders says to him, he says, stop weeping. Stop crying. You have, and he tells them, Behold the line of Judah, the root of David, who has prevailed to open the book. Now, it's interesting. Mark your Bibles if you'd like. The wording that he uses here, the one who has prevailed to open the book, is what that, that rare usage of what you call the perfect in the, the verb that's, that shows up. That means he has conquered in the past and he will continue to conquer. And so he's giving him the assurance, don't worry, the lion, the lamb, he, he won and he's going to continue to win and totally conquer. And so it has that perfect idea that it's going to continue on. He's not going to be stopped. And so John looks closer <coughs> and he sees in the middle of the throne and the beast and the elders, he sees a lamb as if it had been slain. Now, let's take the words, okay, um, and all of these different definitions that are going on here. Um, let's let's make uh, make certain we understand. He's giving different titles in here. Why is he giving different? T- why would he use the Lion of the Tribe of Judah? Any significance in your mind at all? Okay. Why would it be Messiah? Why would you say it's the Messiah? Okay. The line of. Of Judah. Okay, we know that from the Old Testament. He's going to come from the tribe of Judah. Okay, why the term lion? Any ideas? Okay, that idea of the king of the the, the king the, of of all the animals. Is that what he's using it in that sense? That what what does the lion mean to you if you would see it in prophecy? Mighty leader. What's that? Okay, okay. Does the lion at times show up in a negative sense in Bible? Yes or no? Satan is like a... Okay, so how do we put this together? Do you remember I warned you at the beginning? Do not say one usage is then, therefore, all the usages. This is a classic illustration of it. That you just can't say, okay... If there's a lion here, it's got to be the same thing there. You and I know this is not Satan, right? Okay, we understand this. We understand he is defining who or describing who? Jesus Christ. Okay, Jesus Christ the Messiah. And so that lion aspect, if you go back into the Old Testament where it says coming out of the tribe of Judah, it also says, talks about a lion's whelp or one that's going to come as a youngster but grow into being an adult lion. And so it's predicted that this lion is going to be the Messiah. And you've already mentioned because of the power, the ability to defeat, whatever. What's the root of David mean? The root of David. What's that mean? He, he brings it out. He says, you've got to behold. You've got to see this is a lion, the root of David. What's the root of David? Okay, what would you say? Bloodline? Okay. Somebody else? 
Somebody contributing? Okay, okay. The, I, the root literally has the idea of a stem or a descendant. Okay, the word that's used. It's not, it, it, it's pictorial word. It can mean, you know, a root in the ground. It can also be used in uh, genealogy. Okay, very clearly. So we know that as a descendant of David, he's the one that can take the throne. That's been predicted multiple times in the Old Testament that he has to be. So he's, he's going to his lineage. He's confirming that this is the one who is the legitimate predicted one. Takes us back to what you said, Patty, the Messiah. Okay? Then he describes him as well as a lamb. Okay? Why? Why would you say a lion here and then you call him a lamb? Okay, you're thinking sacrificial? Okay, somebody else? What were you saying? Okay, Isaiah. Okay. Which particular spot? Which part in Isaiah 53 you're referring to? Okay. Like the lamb who was led to the slaughter? Okay. Um, It is interesting to take note that the word he uses here is specifically of a small lamb. Why would he use a small lamb? Okay, we're back to the sacrifice again, because when you made your annual sacrifice, the small lamb, which was your sacrifice, was going to be a lamb that was typically a year old or younger and had to be... Okay, there you go. There you go. And so he describes this lamb, and I just... I found this fascinating. Okay, in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53 is the one reference to Messiah, the one reference to Messiah coming as a lamb. Can you think of any New Testament references where Christ is compared to a lamb? John the Baptist. How so? Right? Right? Behold the Lamb of God, which... Okay. Okay, that's one of the four times in the Gospels, that it's mentioned, and the epistles, that he's mentioned compared to a lamb. Okay? So you have one in the Old Testament. You have four in the rest of the books. The book of Revelation has 31 references to him being a lamb. Interesting. Okay? But in this case, how is the lamb portrayed? All those other references are looking basically towards the future sense or the lamb, uh, except for you have Acts and Peter. But this time he says, standing, looking as if he had been slain. Okay? What's the obvious here with this lamb? He's alive. He's alive. This lamb, looking as if it had been slain, was the lamb slain? The answer is yes. But this lamb is no longer slain. He's standing. And so he makes it very clear that he... And the word, by the way, for slain is violently attacked. Okay? It would be a vicious massacre. Was Jesus violently attacked? Okay? It wasn't just a simple, you know, typical one wound. His was a vicious mauling that took place upon him. Other things that show up in this, in this lamb. Look at the, look at the verse. What else is odd, strange about this lamb in its description? Okay, it has how many horns? Okay, what else? How many? Do, uh, do we get the eyes as well in number? 
How many? Seven eyes. What else? Okay, the seven spirits upon him. Okay, so you have these unusual descriptions of a lamb that looks different. What do they signify? They obviously have some meaning, some significance that sets this part of lamb apart. Seven horns. Any guess? Okay. By the way, and I, I'm trying to use the right term. This is guess. Okay. Okay. What'd you think? The seven hills could be because it shows up later. The seven mountains. Okay. What else did? Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Perfection. Okay. Obviously, with the numbers and the comparisons with these numbers, there's completion, perfection involved. Any other any other thoughts that come out of horns? In prophecies in the Old Testament, okay, it has the idea of great strength, power, because there's prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about the idea of horns, and look them up, they are usually paralleled with power. Like a horn having the ability to rule, to reign, to have those powers. Look them up on your own and uh, do some of that research. What do you think the seven eyes? Besides the completion, perfection, what, what would the eyes indicate to you? Sees everything, all-knowing. Okay, I'm going I'm to run with you on that one. Uh, it be the same thing. The seven spirits of God. Who's he tied to, obviously? Seven spirits have shown up before. Who's, who's represented by the seven flames, the seven spirit? What's that? Not the, not the spirits. The who? Somebody said the Holy Spirit, okay. The Holy Spirit in that sense that you have the closely aligned, because earlier he's talked about the seven spirits and he says, which is the Spirit of God, or the Holy Spirit. Um, and that would make perfect sense because Jesus says, the Spirit I'm going to send who is like me, another comforter. But he's described in this animal-like appearance. He's described as in a human appearance. He's described as a lion appearance. How that visually happens, I'm not sure. Okay, is there a transition as he's moving? Does he look like a lion? Then he looks like a lamb. Then he looks like the, you know, the Christ. Um, however that works. But the lion lamb, he takes the scroll out of the hand of God. And we've asked this question, is this similar to what was predicted in the Old Testament? I, um, where Ezekiel talked about the Messiah coming and taking over. In Daniel, when it's talking about the future kingdoms, he says, I was watching in night visions. Behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the ancient. They brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion, glory, and kingdom. All nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom is the one that shall not be destroyed. Okay? Is this that same concept that Jesus is stepping forth and he's given all authority? It seems to make perfect sense that he's the one going to bring it to completion, as we said already. The reaction in heaven is what? As soon as they see this one coming, the lion lamb coming forward, taking the scroll, what, what, what happens in heaven? Okay, there's rejoicing, great rejoicing. Everything in heaven starts breaking out. The beast, he says, the 24 elders. In the verbiage... Okay, where he says, just for your clarification, where he says in verse 8, the beast, the four and twenty elders, and then when he talks about not in verse 9, they sung a new song. The they clearly goes with the 24 elders. The they is not a pronoun that's tied to the four beasts. And that makes perfect sense. 
Because look what they say. You are worthy to take the book, to open the seals, for you, uh, for you uh, were slain. You have redeemed who? Us. So it's not the angels that are singing this song. It's the 24 elders. And the, and the uh, pronoun clearly brings that to pass. The tone drastically changes because redemption is totally probable, possible, started by his being slain, but going to be carried to complete uh, completion through this one, even as we go to the future. They have in their hands harps and golden vials. Okay, that they're in the vial, and it defines it, vials of prayers. Tidbit, just a tidbit. I found it just interesting to do a little bit of study. That is there any significance possibly to the harps in their hand? Well, it could, be, it could help us to understand why we are told that when we get to heaven, we're going to be playing the harp and floating around. Is that the only significance? In the Old Testament, there's a tie that we know that harps were part of the instruments, not the only one, but they were used in worship. I, find, I didn't know this before, but doing some study, they were also used at times in association with giving prophecy. Watch what, what verses we talk about. Bring me a minstrel, and it came to pass when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him to speak about what was happen, going to happen. We have this. David separated to the service uh, the sons of Asaph who should prophesy with harps. It, this one, under the hand of their father, Jeduthun, who prophesied with a harp. I don't know how that works out. I, I don't know what that means, per se, in that sense. Okay? But something in the Old Testament seems to indicate that harps were going along with prophecies that were given. Not all the time, but at some select times. So while they're holding these harps, they also have with them these barrels. Okay, could this be that this is representing that they're saying, here's all the prophecies that you've predicted that are going to be coming to pass? A, a reminder, as if he needs it, but a reminder of, or, or not a reminder so much as, here's are the promises that we're excited about that you're going to fulfill. So, again, I don't know. The vials of incense, which in the Old Testament, incense always seem to be associated with the prayer activity, even in the New Testament. Is this the idea that the church saints are saying, this is what we've prayed for for ages, that now you're going to bring it to pass? This is what you promised us. This is what we prayed for. And we're excited because we're praising. We're seeing that you are going to answer all of our prayers. You are going to fulfill all these prophecies. It makes sense to me that that's, that could be what they're saying here in, in the context. And you know how this would work. Have you ever prayed, thy kingdom come? Yes, no? Okay. Have you ever prayed for Satan to be defeated? Okay. Have you prayed, Lord, come quickly? Okay. So now we're saying, Lord, this is happening. This is really happening. And this is exciting, and so there's a memory of that. There's a reminder of that. I think more memory than reminder. One author put the harps and the bowls indicate that all the prophets, that everything prophesied and all the children, God's children ever prayed is finally about to be fulfilled. And they're excited because there we stand in heaven remembering everything that he's predicted, remembering everything that he told us to pray for, which he did tell us, thy, pray for thy kingdom to come. Yes? 
and that will to be done. And so now we're excited because, whoa, this, he, he's, gonna, he's the one that's going to bring it to pass. And not only is he able to bring it to pass, we go into the chanting and the praising for what he's done for us personally. Not just what he promised. Because then what happens, we sing the new song. And the new song is all about what you did. You were slain. You redeemed us. By the way, there's something that shows up in this verse that in churches in America, they're trying to get away from. Did you catch it here? There's something. Look at verse 9. There's a word, a phrase that churches are trying to take out of hymn books and all. They sung a new song saying, You are worthy to take the book to open the seals thereof. For you were slain. You have redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, tongue, people, nation. The blood. Yes? Okay? Because we don't want to have a gory Christianity. We don't have a bloody Christianity. And yet in the future, and in the heaven itself, what is brought up? The blood of Jesus Christ. And there's no, there's no hesitation that this is what was paid by his blood. This is how everything is coming to pass. And we're not going to forget that. We're not going to get there and become more civilized. We're going to appreciate the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for our sins and for the world. And then he talks about how he's making us kings and priests and heirs, which is going to be coming to pass in actuality as we move further into the kingdom. There's a choir of angels, great numbers. I mentioned to you last week, if you weren't here, 10,000 times 10,000 times the 10,000. That's because in the Greek language that the book of Revelation was uh, put into, that was the largest number they had. They didn't have a million. They didn't have a billion. They didn't have America's debt in the trillion. Okay. Their largest number was 10,000. So they're using their largest number possible. Is that the exact number of angels? Could be. Or it could be he's saying an innumerable amount of angels. Okay. Um, and so he's talking the idea that he, he wasn't, I, I, you know, I don't think John's standing there going, one, two, three, don't move, three, four. You know, all 10,000 of you hold still, okay, um, so I can get a good count. And their focus is what they're doing is they're just, they're rejoicing. And their, their song is about one person, okay? It's worthy, isn't it? That's not fair. I shouldn't say it that way. Uh, I'm going I'm to back up and correct that. Clearly, they're talking about Jesus Christ, worthy is the Lamb, the one that was slain. Um, and so they recognize he is to be exalted above them. They make it very clear. Worthy is the Lamb. He should have all power, dominion, everything that they say. This should go to Him over us. He should be exalted above us. But they also recognize the importance of His sacrifice. Yeah. What does that bring to you and I? We want to be excited about the greatness of Jesus Christ in our singing, in our praising. But we don't want to forget how... He died for us. How he was sacrificed. We want, we're, we're excited about his exaltation, but we have to also remember in our praise to him, we want to express our appreciation for his, his voluntary sacrifice. I don't know how else to say it. Okay? They make it clear that he deserves all that any creature might value. In this word, the reason I say that is the phrase that they use that just struck me as I was uh, thinking about this, verse 12. He's worthy that was slain to receive. Look at the words they use. Power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, blessing. That's pretty much everything that we would value. 
anything that we would say you know is valuable something worth working for and so they listed out and so jesus is worthy of everything he's worthy of everything that we had ever dreamed possible that we might enjoy and so they make that praise and it's clear to them to us when we're there it's clear christ alone merits this not the angels Christ alone merits this. But when I say Christ alone, they also join in in praising. And you have all the creatures, okay, that start praising as well. And all those creatures have been predicted to praise. Back in the Psalms, let heaven and earth praise him and everything that moves in them. We have in Psalms, let everything that has breath, now it's coming to pass. Everything is praising him at this moment. And when they're praising him... They also include the throne sitter. This is a tremendous doctrine, uh, an exclamation to a tremendous doctrine. They are, look what they're doing. They say, blessing and honor and glory, verse 13, power be unto him that sits upon the throne and unto who else? Unto the lamb forever and ever. What does that tell you about Jesus and God? There, here we go. Here's a reference. Jesus is divine. The angels would not be worshiping another angel. Okay? They wouldn't be giving glory and honor to one like them. This is another one of those subtle hints that Jesus is divine, that he is, he is deity. And so they want both the Son and God the Father. They want them to be exalted, to be elevated. And so they're doing the praises. And then at the end of it, the four beasts say, Amen, which literally is, we're behind it. Let it be that. Make it so. They're just, you know, I'm in agreement. And so you got the song by all these, these angelic beings, all the saints, and then you have a hearty amen by the four, the four beasts, four creatures. So what do, we, what do we take and say, okay, we have this scene that's phenomenal. What can we walk out of it? What can we take with us this week? Here's a thought that I think is extremely potent, okay, in application. As the lion and the lamb, Jesus is the only one able to carry out God's plan. And God trusts Jesus to carry out his plan. Can we trust Jesus with our piddly things? If he can handle all of that, can he handle our... Yeah, yeah, the things we struggle with. We struggle with conflicts with people. We struggle with disappointment over government. We struggle with, you know, financial issues. We struggle with health issues. Is Jesus capable of handling our difficulties? Yeah, if he can carry the whole world and bring about God's plan, he can bring about, okay, let me put it this way. In heaven, we're excited because Jesus is bringing to pass all the prophecies. Jesus is bringing to pass even the things we could have been praying for. Can he do that right now? Can he bring about God's promises that are for us right now? Absolutely. Can he answer our prayers right now? Absolutely. So we can trust him now. 
which I think is an important thought for each and every one of us. If he's that great and that, that magnificent, surely he can, he can handle the difficulties that we have. Second thought comes to mind. As a believer, our ultimate future is absolutely certain. It is certain, as the representation here, that we're going to be in heaven. We will be there. We will rule and reign. He has told us that. He is going to bring it to pass. It is an absolute certainty. Though at moments, we go, you're coming back, right? Yeah, 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 you said you would. But you really meant it, didn't you? It's, It's an absolute certainty. So we don't have to lose hope. We don't have to lose confidence. And we have to remember that's the ultimate. That's where we should be investing, you know, the ultimate. And it's great to have the houses and the lands and the cars. That's good stuff. And we need that stuff to be able to provide. But ultimately, where should our focus be? Okay, in eternity. And what's going to last and count for eternity? How about this thought? Worship is appropriate and can be a thrilling activity. If you want to improve your worship... Looking at what they were focused on, or we will be focused on in the future, what might we do to improve our worship in an hour? In less than an hour, in a half hour. What could we take from here to say, hey, I should think about this, I should think about that, that might help me to improve my worship? Any thoughts? It's not going to bode well if we don't walk away with something. Okay. Think about the promises and the confidence it should bring and the joy okay. and that should bring. Okay. Excellent. Anything else? Go ahead. Okay. Excellent. What's that, Gary? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts? Practical suggestions? Okay. How about practical suggestions like, let's not get distracted. Let's not get caught up with, oh, look at that outfit she wore. Okay. That's interesting. I don't admit that's a bad way of putting it. I'm sorry. (laughs) You'll never visit again. Uh, (laughs) Or we get caught up with, you know, things around us. What should we be caught up when we sing this morning? Christ. Let's get caught up with him. Let's, how about, like you said, maybe, maybe, like they did in heaven. They, we will in heaven. Maybe we ought to start the service with rehearsing. What is our purpose? What is our purpose to be here today? Is our purpose to be here to fulfill a duty? Then it's a chore to go to church. And we saw at the beginning, some people consider church a chore. Okay. Maybe we should pause and remind ourselves when we have our quiet meditation time, this is why we were created. We were created to bring glory and honor to him. Maybe what we should do is, maybe, maybe be helpful. One, you, put, you said one of the promises, which I didn't put up here, but I think it's an excellent idea. Maybe when we start singing this morning, you should claim one promise as you're singing. And let that be what you're reflecting on and how it applies to your situation as you sing about God's faithfulness and God's greatness, applying it to one promise that you are claiming. 
Maybe we should pause this morning when we have it and say, I'm going to focus in on one attribute. And while I sing, while we pray, while we do, I'm going to be reflecting on one attribute of God. God sees me. He sees everything. He knows me. God is faithful. God is... And pick something that you're thinking through, consciously thinking and thanking, not just going through the motions of of praise, but actually focusing in. And God, I'm thanking you for this right now. This is what I'm thinking of. Or maybe you want to think and thank on some blessing. God, this is, I, as I sing this morning, I'm thinking about my, my kids, my grandkids, and how you've been working in their hearts. And I want to praise you, God, for da-da-da-da-da-da. So reflecting in the sense of what God has done. Then there's another application. Don't stop praying. Does God ignore our prayers and just tune us out? What does this passage illustrate for us when it comes to prayers? Yeah, God doesn't forget our prayers. He doesn't, God isn't like, don't bother me, get away. God isn't like what we do at times. You know, I lost my phone. You know, I don't think God is like this, that he says, oh, Burgraff's calling. Yeah. I don't think God does that. Do you? Okay. So, but, but do you ever feel like he's done that to you? Because it's not answering as quickly as what you want. And so we need to remind ourselves, God doesn't discard our prayers. He doesn't ignore us. He might delay our answer. He might say no to us. But God is cognizant and doesn't forget. Even the saints are bringing the prayers before, and it's not a forgetful thing. It's just a fascinating. Okay, so we have all this fascination here. Okay, before I jump, anybody else want to make some application that would be helpful from this, from this text as far as worship or praise? Anything comes to your mind? Please? I'm sorry? Okay. Yeah, excellent. Look for something to praise in the midst of trouble. I mean, in John's case, is John personally experiencing trouble in, in this world? Do you remember what the setting? Where is John when he's seeing and writing all this? He's in a persecution moment in a, on an island in, uh, in exile. Thank you. Looking for some, somebody else? Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Okay, excellent, excellent. I didn't even think about that. That's a good point. Sing scripture. I mean, this is a... Make a song out of this. Or make up your own tune. But phenomenal. Yes, sir, George? I'm thinking that the same author who saw these things in heaven is the one who wrote John 3.16. Mm. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Wow. Wow. You're combining the two thoughts here. The John 3.16 with this text. Excellent, excellent, excellent. So think on it. Take advantage of some of this when we do our meditation time at the beginning of our service and uh, put it into practice. Okay, chapter 6. We're jumping now. The scene of heaven is shifting. The Lamb is going to start opening up. Okay, and we're not going to get far at all. You know that already. Okay, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals and I heard... As it were, the noise of thunder, one of the beasts saying, come and see. Okay, so now we're, we're getting attention once again, drawn to this, and he's going to start. And he says, I saw and behold a white horse. He that sat on him had a bow, a crown was given unto him. He went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. 
And we went. There was another horse that was red. Power was given to him that sat there on take peace from the earth, that they should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld it, lo, a black horse. He that sat thereon had a pair of balances. And I heard the voice in the beast of the, uh, in the midst of the beast say, A measure of wheat for a penny, three measures of barley for a penny. You, and see you hurt not the oil and the wine. And when I, he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse in his name. That sat, uh, his name that sat on him was death and hell. They followed, and power was given unto them over one quarter part of the earth to kill with the sword, hunger, death, and with beasts. Oh, that's not exciting. One quarter of the world's population at that moment will die. Okay? That's not exciting. Here's the exciting part that we're not going to get far. Did you notice, okay? What, did you notice something? Where was the church? before the seals started opening. Where is it pictured? In heaven. The church is pictured in heaven. Is that significant? Very. Very. Okay. Yeah, how did the church get to heaven before the beginning of this opening of these seals? When did the church get into heaven? Okay. The how, you, we all know. How do we end up getting to heaven? Do we all die? No. How is it guaranteed that the church is, gets to heaven? Somebody said it over here. The rapture. Okay. This is a text that is going that we're going to turn to and unfold that's going to talk about the, the return of Jesus Christ. Remember how he said, I'm going to be, build a house uh, in my house or in my father's house are many mansions. If we were not, so I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am you may be always. We normally address that verse for what life event? Death. We normally apply that passage to death. Is that the only application of that text? I will come and receive you unto myself. Okay. The rapture is another possibility. That he, when he's got things prepped, he's going to be coming and receiving unto us. And First Thessalonians 4 talks about how he's going to come from heaven. And so when we start going through the text, okay, we have to understand this term is not found in... She, she used rapture. I'm using it here. It's not a Bible term that you'll find in the Bible. Neither is Trinity, okay? But it's a concept. It's a teaching. So the rapture's not found there. It's definitely going to happen. Because as we'll see when we pick up next week, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. Paul is writing to the church of Thessalonica. He's writing them. And he's telling them, I'm telling you something by the word of the Lord. I'm telling you it's going to happen. And then he adds to it, or Jesus added to it, if it were not so, I would have told you. This is not a trick. This is going to be our greatest experience beyond getting saved is when we get taken to heaven. It means we're going to physically go up in the clouds. Okay? None of us are ready for it yet, right? We, we want to pay our taxes. Lord, delay until April 15th. Okay? No? No? Could it happen today? How would you respond?